Welcome to another episode of North American Deer Talk, where the fusion of facts and opinions become the education and entertainment for all. This is your host, Josh Newton, and we have another great show for you today. and welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. This is your host, Josh Newton. Thanks for joining us today. So today we're doing an episode that we're going to call Farm Slash Ranch Prep Pre-Fawning. So in this episode, we're going to cover um, the weeks prior to fawns arriving and kind of our, our take on that. Also some, some techniques to ensure that um, the fawns have the best opportunity to to really thrive and, and, and be in the best possible condition for uh, life beyond the womb. Um, I guess the, the first place that we want to start is uh, when, you know, is by, by asking a question. So when does preparation actually start? And we could look at that and say preparation starts the day the does are bred. So whether that be natural service out in pasture or via AI. And this is, you know, perhaps one of the the cycles of the whitetail or or maybe a little subsection of, of doing preparation prior to um the AI or the natural service happening, but we're gonna we're gonna talk about it from you know the day of conception forward. So, what are some of the things that we can do to make sure that when those fawns come, when they actually hit the ground in May, June, July, that um, they have the best chance at number one living, um, number two thriving in the environment that they're brought into. So. <clears throat> Prepping your does or or taking care of your does, making sure that they're in the best possible condition for that particular event that's going to happen, which is them freshening, which is them having a fawn. Um, what can we do? So a high quality feed obviously is is a real you know simple basic input that we we typically have to make sure that those animals have every day. We want that feed to be the best that we can give them. So here we're located in north central Pennsylvania and the feed we use is called Max Rax. Uh, this was developed by the Horrox family out of uh, Texas some 20-25 years ago uh, and primarily started as an exotic feed uh, for, for horn growth and they they simply, you know, as, as the whitetail market expanded, um, they developed a, a feed for, you know, body condition slash antler growth. Um, same, same basic uh, premise and principles, just a, a different species of animal. So this, this feed, this, uh, this Max Rax, um, 
really is a, a high quality food and that's manufactured at Mark Hershey Mills in Lebanon, PA. I feel that Mark Hershey is uh, one of the premier feed mills uh, in, in the eastern um, states. So, you know, if you're looking for a really high quality deer feed that's uh, relatively reasonably priced, um, they're, they're available at Mark Hershey Mills. You can ask for that Max Racks. Um, if you like, we have our own kind of special uh, blend, if you will, of those. We have a, a, a summer formula and a winter formula with just a little bit of level tweaking, if you will, for the, the fat, protein, and fiber contents uh, to adjust for the, the seasonality of, of, of what those animals are intaking. Also, I don't think it can be understated what a, a really high-quality uh, roughage can provide an animal over the winter months. So, for the most part, in the northern states, you have a, a winter that can extend from, you know, the latter parts of October uh, into April. Now, this... This winter and, and for the past couple have been relatively mild here in Pennsylvania. Uh, we had virtually no snow coverage. And like I said, we're in the, the north central region. We're in a, a very mountainous area. When snow comes, it typically stays. And, and we like that. Like in the mountains, you get a little bit of snow every day. Um it just it's a nice a nice condition for the animals. It keeps a, a fresh blanket over your pastures, and allows that vegetation to really uh, maintain its its root structure and and not get kind of clipped off by by hoofs. When you get into a place where that weather um, is is providing conditions where it freezes at night thaws during the day those hoofs as those animals are walking around they act like scissors and they just they just destroy pasture um, because there's no photosynthesis that goes on it there's no regeneration there's no new growth so you have a pasture that needs to exist for some four or five months in a um, in a way that is untouched so whatever condition it starts in in the fall, it's going to be in some sort of condition in the in the spring. So it's <clears throat> it's important to look at that um, and plan accordingly. Obviously, we don't know what Mother Nature is going to do, and you know she's going to dump snow or not. But um, so those are those are really two um, two things to look at, and it. Um, they're pretty simple inputs. You know, you have you have your feed, something you can give every day, and uh, you have hay. So I guess back to the the hay more specifically. I got off on a, a pasture tangent. Um, the the hay itself, I've I've seen many guys now. Again, we're over in the the eastern part of the state, and there there is no high quality hay in Pennsylvania. So anybody you know here in PA, if you're if you're hearing this, um, that if you're if you're buying hay local and you think it's good, it's it might be okay. Um, it's not okay for deer. Will they eat it? Yes. Will you have lots of waste? 
most definitely. Um, the 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 climate and the environment in the western states, um, New Mexico, Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. Th- that's where good hay comes from. Some in some in Iowa too. Um, <clears throat> it's just the specifically from like the Rockies right right shy of the eastern side of the Rockies into into the west they just they have an environment that is generally arid uh, which means dry mostly dry and they add water they irrigate these fields and they can control the hay in such a way that we can't over here in the east it's just too humid um, to get really high quality hay to grow now doesn't mean that you know, once in a blue moon, you don't have like the perfect conditions, uh, let's say here in Pennsylvania, to grow hay. That that can happen. But to consistently get high quality, you know, fourth cutting hay, uh, it should come from the West. So, you know, plan on importing your, importing your hay. Um, the hay is a whole separate topic. Sometimes you get good stuff, sometimes you don't. Um, there, there's always like a, a challenge that's involved with that. And we will, we'll save that for a future episode, but just my, um, my take, spend the money, get some good quality hay, um, in the scheme of things, what they, they eat of that. It's pretty cheap. Um, and there are some, there are some, you know, baleage type options. So, um, you know, there's two, two primary products that are that are marketed one is chaffe the other is the uh alfalfa hay and basically it's it's uh alfalfa that's that's cut um i don't know if they're both sprayed with a preserve or, or preservative or not but then they're they're basically vacuum sealed into a plastic bag and um then they're you know they're fed as like a, a silage a, a really high moisture content um offering to the animals and uh, for the most part you know the animals do do good on that they most animals seem to like it the only place where that's really not going to be feasible to use um, is where it's just brutally cold all the time so your uh, your Canadian farms you know if it's minus 20 that that the moisture content is just too high uh, it's going to be a brick and the animals are just, they're not going to want to eat it. Um, a dry, a dry hay in that environment, you know, high quality, normal, you know, dried hay, they will just, they will do so much better on. So those are some, some things to consider. Um, the, the reason that we like to kind of tailor more of a hay diet um, over necessarily a grain diet is because generally speaking, deer are not meant to eat grain, even though they, in, in our industry, in the, in the captive servant industry, they perform really well on a, on a grain based diet, on a high energy, high fat type of diet. They just, they convert it well. Um, they grow exceptionally large bodies. They grow incredible antlers. So, um, I'm not saying get away from that. Uh, but, I think in the winter they they almost limit themselves. So 
you know, you'll have to look at, especially your, your mineral content, if you're feeding, um, you know, a, a kind of a, a high test mineral feed throughout the winter months, you'll see those animals, their, their intake will be lower than a kind of more basic high fiber-ish type feed. Um, and I think it's just because their bodies know they don't need that stuff over the winter. They need a little bit, but they don't need so much of it. So I'll give you the perfect example. You put high quality, you know, we'll call it, you know, steak and potatoes kind of feed out there for them. Really good stuff. Nice quality alfalfa, etc. And you watch these animals walk over to a hemlock tree and start chewing the bark off it. And they sit there and they chew on it. And then they grab some pine needles off of a, you know, Virginia pine or something like that. And then they go and they, they eat some, you know, roots out of a, a root ball. And you're like, why are these animals not eating this good stuff that I just put out for them? And it's just their, their bodies saying, hey, this is the type of feed that, that you need. Um, dried leaves in the fall. You watch those those leaves come off those trees. Um, they devour them. They just devour them. Uh, me personally, I look at a, a dried oak leaf and some roasted soybeans, and I don't want the dry uh, the dried leaves. I have no interest in that. But those those roasted soybeans are pretty good. So anyway, those deer kind of know what they need and. Um, we, we try to provide them with a, you know, a kind of nicely balanced feed. But I, I really do like the more forage-based type of, of feeds over the winter. Um, and let, you know, let, the, let those animals eat their grain and such. But we really don't want to come into the fawning season where those does are big and fat and kind of slick looking. I don't anyway. Um, one of the reasons is is if if you have if you have does that are over conditioned, and that would be one of those big pets like those, there is a possibility that they have problems fawning, um, especially if for some reason they have a single birth. So you get ten plus pound fawn, and they have excessive fat deposits on them. They're gonna have they could they could have trouble fawning not not all the time but it's it's possible so generally speaking we'll try to keep our does a little bit trimmed down um, you know and that that's kind of where genetics and nutrition kind of overlap and you can start looking at different genetic lines that are more productive than others also. Um, you know, animals, and when I say productive, I mean um, does that have multiple births on a consistent basis, so two, two or more fawns, um, but not so productive that they're having, you know, four or five. For me personally, if I can get a really nice set of twins all the time, that that's perfect for me. Um, we run more of a, a hands-off uh, type facility with... We, 
we still do a little bit of bottle feeding every once in a while for our breeding program. Um, females only. We, we just, it's my absolute last option to bottle feed males. And I just, I don't, um, I don't think there's a lot of value in, in, in bottle fed males on a, a larger scale for our industry at this point. Um, again, that's my personal opinion. It doesn't mean that the guys that bottle feed um, their buck fawns uh, can't find value for them. Just for me, and I think for most people, there, there's no value in a bottle-fed buck. But um, we, we, can look at, um, we can look at all those aspects of, of the doe and, again, how she's conditioned, what she's eating, and really get her in a, a good place for, for fawning. So um, I think we've kind of covered the, the general preparation uh, of things and those are more so some tips for wintering for the for the northern guys um, I want to talk about uh, the sec- second thing I want to talk about is what we can't see and that's social stress and I don't think that we can we can overstate that enough part two of that overcrowding is bad and you know What's the general recommendation on uh, amount of animals that that a um, you know a piece of ground can cover? So, the first thing, social stress can't be overstated. What is social stress? Um, I don't think it's something that we can easily pick up, but I I I do think that even though you may have calm does, bottle fed does. They lay around, they chew their cud, they seem happy. I still think that the interactions within a, a, a pasture or you know, a pen environment have unseen social stresses. And I can't, I can't quite quantify this. It's just something that I, I think I observe generally and I see it in the the health of the youngest animals on the on the farm. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump back to that in a second. So here's the here's kind of the the third point: how to find your land's carrying capacity as far as your inventory goes. The baseline for me when I'm talking with anyone about uh, deer starting a new farm, existing farms, etc. The baseline is four to six adults per acre. That's a good place to start. Now, why do we start there? It's been, I would say, researched many, many times, especially at some of the state's uh, state facilities. We can look at um, uh, Mississippi. I, I was reading a a book by Dr. Harry Jacobson. And he had he had stated the four to five adults per acre, and and I kind of looked at that, and I looked at my own environment, and I, I had more animals, more adult animals at that time, and um, I I looked at that, and I said, okay, that that's a that seems like a good a reasonable starting place. He's a he's a smarter man than me, and has a lot more experience. Um, I'm gonna give that a try, and what I did is I I went down 
and I said, okay, so we have a one acre pen. I'm gonna put um, four does that are bred into that pen, let them fawn. We're gonna see how things go. And you keep track of your interactions with those fawns that are born and how many interventions that you need to make, whether it be uh, treating a sick fawn, overall health, etc. by the time weaning and, and, and beyond goes. And then to figure out this carrying capacity, what I did is I just added another animal or two into the environment until I found a place where the percentage of either morbidity, the amount of animals getting sick, or mortality, the amount of animals dying, and when I say animals, I mean fawns, um, were either getting sick or dying because of sickness. And as soon as I went over a threshold that I was not comfortable with, I dropped the adult number back and I found the carrying capacity for that particular pasture. And then, I, you know, you test that out over time. And you may have to make some tweaks here and there. We're going to get into some other components of that carrying capacity. But first, we're going to swing back to the social stress. So once you find that carrying capacity, let's say you're way over that. I talked to a lot of guys way, way, way over that. You know, I'll be having a conversation. How many does are you, do you have in a pen? I have 15. How big is your pen? My pen's 100 by 300. Okay, so you have a, you know, you have a, that's in feet. So you have a football field, basically, soccer field, whatever. And you have 15 does in it. So they're pushing close to three times the amount. And, you know, they're, they're having mortality rates that are, you know, exceeding 20 or 25 or 30, 50%. Um, the easiest thing we can do is just reduce those numbers down. And your land will be just as productive as if you were running those 15. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many deer you have. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how many fawns you have. It matters how many get to market. How many animals can you put out the door successfully for whatever business model you have, and you have to create that business model. Totally separate topic. But if you're just like, oh, we had 200 fawns. Well, if only 50 of them are alive in September... I could have done that same amount and, you know, you need 100, 125 does to have 200 fawns. I could have done that with 25 does, 30 does. So you look at that feed bill, you look at the inputs into those animals. And if I have a, a successful health program and I only have to feed 30 adult does to get the 50 fawns and you had to feed 120, at the end of the day... I'm way far ahead, way, way far ahead. So um, it's important to, it's important to, to, to think about aspects like that. So this, this social stress, I, I think that once we get above that kind of six animals per acre, even though the does hang out together, I think there's something that goes on that, that causes some stress and the animals don't seem to do near as well. Um, at least not that I've found, and 
and not not here. Um, again, it could be that in particular uh, circumstances and and different places things are different, but generally speaking, um, not not here. And and I weigh that social stress off of the um, again that more mortality and morbidity in those fonts. So, what are what are some additional things that we we look at to help prepare these animals. Well, vaccinations are a, a big thing. So I was a I was a a non-vaccinator, non-input kind of guy for for quite some time. And what had happened is, you know, with anything, you your experience teaches you um, how to how to do things better. And sometimes you're forced into a situation where you you have to make a change or you know you're you're gonna fail and the vaccine aspect was was like that for us so we had a just incredibly poor year fawning and uh, we developed a, a vaccine we implemented that and the next year it was just like it was incredible. We had just tremendous success. And that in conjunction with keeping the numbers low and having high quality food really started to, to pay dividends. So um, two, two things with vaccinating. Are you new to the game? If you are, if you have not run, <coughs> excuse me, if you have not run a vaccine program, how do you how do you start that in the spring? How do you start that? So you would look at your your estimated fawning date. So if you AI, you you know your exact fawning date approximately. You have a gestation of around one hundred and ninety six days in a whitetail. So you know those those beginning of November, first two weeks of November. You're looking at last two weeks of May, give or take. I'm just throwing some rough rough numbers out there. Um, so let's just say it was May 30th. So you would subtract 55 to 60 days. That would be your first shot. So May 30th, April 30th, March 30th. So somewhere end of March, beginning of April, you give your first shot. And then two to four weeks later, or two to four weeks post shot one, you would give a booster. Now, are you an old pro? Have you vaccinated before? The simplest thing to do is simply give one shot 30 days prior to birth. Now, I've had multiple conversations with folks um, who have, you know, large herds and they, um, they, they want to they wanna do their booster, but they're unsure about handling, physically handling those animals um, that close to birth. We have seen near zero issues with handling animals that close to birth. The first year that I vaccinated, we vaccinated, we had two different groups that we did. We we got the vaccine really late, but like we just didn't have a choice because like I said, the year prior was was rough as far as fawn mortalities go. So we um 
we went ahead and we vaccinated May 5th and May 7th. We had fawns on May 10th. Those were the first, first set of fawns. No issues. No does were aborting. No, you know, no problems at all. Fawns all came out, you know, four legs, two eyes, six sets of antlers, that kind of thing. Every, everything was good. So um, you could look at it that way. You could also... You could also look at it and say, okay, we had 100 fawns last year. I really want to vaccinate because I only made it to weaning with 50 of those fawns. So we had a 50% mortality rate. But I don't want to go through the process of breeding and AIing and using expensive semen, etc. I'm paying my vet bills on these... 50 does to get my 100 fawns and then run them into the chute to vaccinate them and potentially have a doe or two abort. And you can, you can come back to, you know, the carrying capacity of the land and how, how I kind of explained, you know, running those numbers. If, if you have two does that abort, let's just say four fawns, but your mortality rate goes from 50% to 25%, you're still net number of fawns by a lot. So there's that's a risk assessment that you have to do. You have to look at that and you have to say, okay, this is something I'm going to commit to. I, I know this works. I have to be willing to risk X to get Y. And in this case, I'm, I'm willing to risk, let's just say, a doe breaking a leg in the chute or an animal aborting a fawn or, I mean, come up with tons of stuff that happens when animals are handled. But I'm willing to risk that to have healthy babies. So that's really... That's kind of the basics of, of giving those shots. Now, why do, we, why do we vaccinate those does? Why can't we just vaccinate fawns? Um, the, there's a term called passive immunity. And what passive immunity is, is it, it basically, um, it looks at the does and it says, okay, we're going to give these animals a, a shot of vaccine. It's going to create an immune response in their bodies, an education, if you will. To their immune system. That way, when they encounter the particular bacteria that's in those vaccines in a natural setting, there's already antibodies on board. Their, their systems are already educated to um, fight, fight that off. Well, what happens is when you vaccinate, that immune system, those antibodies, are passed on to the fawns through colostrum. Now, why is it important for us to have really good conditioned does? Because the first 12 or so hours of life, 12 to 24 hours, but really the first 12, are incredibly important for that fawn to, number one, get the nutrition it needs, but to also get those antibodies 
immunoglobins, if you will, their, their proteins from their mom. So that's why we place so much effort into conditioning those does and getting them to be, quote unquote, as healthy as possible um, prior to fawning. So that, that passive immunity is a, a really well-established um, um, theory, if you will, in you know all, all pretty much all animal livestock industries. So beef cattle, uh, sheep, etc. Um, so that's that's why we really focus on those does. So um, as we kind of get into um, more of the, the closing space. You want to look at an overall assessment of the herd, the operation, the conditions, and so forth. Um, a couple of those those things we have to ask ourselves is, what have we learned from previous years? Do we have diagnostic material from animals that can help us learn from the past so we can benefit in the future? And And that's where those the the education process for yourself really takes hold. So you, you need to be able to look at this and kind of step back and look at the big picture and say, okay, um, this year I think that I'm going to try to run less does on the pen, hope that the weather doesn't blow us up, and... It appears from the diagnostics that I've done the previous year that we need to make some feed changes because we're having some acidosis, clostridial issues, etc. And and really having that assessment, it, it's good to write it down. You know, let's put put everything on the table, kind of try to you know look at all this stuff you know, as a whole and say, okay, here's, here's kind of the game plan moving forward because of what's happened previously. Um, uh, another really nice thing is to, if you, if you have like, I, I think I'm, an, I'm, I'm personally to the point where, um, you know, I've, I've done this for a certain amount of time that I have confidence in my ability to be able to to, to do certain things on my farm and to perform in a, in a certain way. Um, but I still like to have conversations with other people that have good knowledge base and that I respect and enjoy, you know, having conversations about deer with and just kind of vent out my ideas. And, you know, maybe they pick up on something that you missed, something that's glaring. Um, or they can make suggestions, or you can have a good conversation. So it's always good to kind of bounce your ideas of, of you know, herd health generally off of, of other guys um, to, you know, see if you're lacking or see if your thought process is maybe in a, in a different place. And you guys can, can help each other on that. So um, I do want to touch on the, the weather in relation to this, this herd assessment. So... Um, Generally speaking, what what is the weather been like, you know, in a spring or a summer? Um, and then be, be prepared for that in the best way you can. Um, weather doesn't necessarily make animals sick. It simply provides an environment 
or whatever is wrong to be exacerbated. So if you have animals that are kind of getting along okay, maybe they have a little cough every once in a while or something, and then you just get some, you know, 34 degree dumping rain, and then it's 80 the next day, you know, you're going to have some pneumonia issues. That's a fact. Like, it's coming for you. If you have animals that are well-conditioned, potentially vaccinated, and they're in a place where they can handle that because they're not, they don't have an underlying condition or they, they, they're not just off a little bit, they'll be just fine. Um, as we continue to keep our numbers low and continue to spread the animals out and give them more space while continuing to apply some of the principles that we talked about, we see less and less problems. Now, that's not to say that deer don't do deer things, like hit fences or, you know, do just do crazy odd things. Like, they do. Um, they, they definitely do. But we can, we can see that lesson and lesson over, over time. Um, again, I think that the, you know, the space, space issue, um, you know, with overcrowding, social stresses, uh, really plays into that. So don't, back to the weather, don't let the weather be an excuse for you. Don't say, oh, it was the weather. Now, does, does that mean that when you get uh, 73 inches of rain in a month that, you know, the weather didn't cause the death of a lot of animals? Well, sure it did. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But within reason, you know, within reason. I mean, you get catastrophic floods that come through and literally the animals are like floated off and they die or they're smashed into a fence or, what you know, whatever happens. Um, obviously, you can't control those things. But when like the the particular instance that i mentioned when you know you get that cold you know just soaking rain and then you get a big old hot day within 24 hours and it's hard for those animals to adjust but a well-conditioned animal will it will so don't don't let the weather be an excuse um um i just have a, a note here why do does need to be sorted 30 days or more prior to falling? I think this comes back to the social stress. Um, as we know, you know, you put any amount of does into a, you know, a, a relatively confined setting of, you know, a couple acres or, or whatever you use. And, you know, there's, there's different attitudes with, with all those, those animals out there and they have to interact. They have to live in the same space. Some does just don't like each other. Um, so what do we, what do we do with those mean girls? Those does out there that just are all attitude all the time. I say cage match. I say you take all those mean does you put them in the pen, you know, 45 days, 30 days prior to fawning, preferably 45, and you let them hash it out. And you let all those attitudes collide. Somebody's going to come out on top. So um, in closing, let's hope that we get to 
Um, let's hope that we get to fawning and those fawns come out as healthy as possible for you. Um, all that hard work will, it's, it's always, it's always, um, it's always nice to see those fawns when they come out. It's, it's such a, a great joy. Um, they're stinking cute. There's just no, there's no other way to, to, to look at it. And they have so much promise. Um, I, at least for, for all the deer breeders, I know those fawns have so much promise for the future that it's a shame to lose them or, or have to go through any type of, you know, sickness treatment or things that we could potentially prevent. So I'll leave you with that. Enjoy your spring. Um, We'll have a couple more episodes coming at you. I'm going to try to get back into the, the swing here. It's been a few years since I I set this mic up and, you know, started doing shows. So I, I've had enough people ask, hey, can you can you do some more of these? And, um, you know, if anybody has questions or, you know, comments or they want to hear a particular topic or, you know, doing do an interview or whatever you know my my line's open you can you can reach me here in my office it's eight four 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 seven eight two eight seven zero again that's eight four 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 seven eight two eight seven zero uh or you can shoot me an, an email it's j newton at servidsolutions.com again i hope everybody enjoyed it um it is uh april 9th so all this uh, crazy COVID nonsense stuff's going on. I hope everybody's safe. Uh, I do wish you all well and uh, look forward to chatting with you all again soon. Take care.